Why do the other kids do everything differently? Is there something the matter with you? When you are working for yourself, it is 24-7. And it becomes very difficult to find the boundaries. And then on the upside of that, if you're in this period where like things are happening and you can sort of see like what it is you want to attain and you know it's within your grasp, that kind of just makes it even crazier. Has anyone ever told you you're too rebellious or hot-blooded, arrogant, obsessive? How about difficult or maybe even a little weird? Well, you might just be a rare breed. I'm Ashley Hansberger. I'm Sunny Bonnell, and you're listening to Rare Breed, a podcast about people who harness the power of their vices and turn them into virtues. Like 24-year-old Tomi Adeyemi, hailed the next J.K. Rowling, is the most successful among young Black authors in recent history. And don't forget, along with her novel, she secured a seven-figure contract, one of the biggest movie deals in the history of adapted literature. From writing her first story at the age of five to selling the movie rights to an unpublished fantasy trilogy, Tomi has made a tremendous accomplishment for any writer. And she's just getting started with her second novel, Children of Virtue and Vengeance, coming out next year and first move installation already in development. We're coming at you from our offices in lower, crazy, noisy Manhattan. This is Rare Breed. It is not every day that an unknown 24-year-old sells the movie rights to an unpublished fantasy trilogy for a reported seven figures. How are you feeling about all this? For me, it goes in waves because like the outside world sees all the highlights and I see all like the sleepless nights. It's been nonstop insane work. So there wasn't any time to sort of sit back and feel it. So I feel like I've been getting a little bit of a breather and just getting to reflect on like, wow, this is what I'm doing now. And that's pretty cool. Were you putting in seven day a week, like all day, every day? For children of blood and bone, it was all consuming. The funny thing is when you tell someone that you're a writer, they're like, oh, so you wake up at three, you make a gin and tonic, you stare in the trees. And you're like, no, I go to bed at 3 p.m. because I've been up all night. And yeah, like, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm sweating profusely and I'm like screaming at my computer. It's because when you are working for yourself, it is 24-7 and it becomes very difficult to find the boundaries. And then on the upside of that, if you're in this period where like things are happening and you can see like what it is you want to attain and you know it's within your grasp, that kind of just makes it even crazier. From the start of the book's journey, I was putting myself in kind of high pressure, impossible situations. And that only ratcheted up like each level that it got closer to actually being published and becoming this thing that the world could be a part of. I've had to figure out kind of how to live sustainably for the second book. <laughs> when did you go from the concept of the book to fingers on the keys? The book idea came very close to me realizing that I wanted to pursue writing full time and that I wanted to really go for it. This happened 70 days before a writing competition I wanted to enter. So that gave me two months to produce two drafts of a book that didn't exist. The only comparison I had is the first book I tried to get published, and it took me two years to get to two drafts. So I was already kind of set against the impossible, but I really, really wanted it. So I was like, let me at least try and fail as opposed to decide I can't do it. And so I tried, and it was a very crazy 70 days. The first draft came together in 30 days. The second draft came together in that last 40 days. And yeah, just got more intense from there. 
What was the difference between the first book that did not get picked up to the second concept? I think the biggest difference between the books was one book was a love letter for the Harry Potter generation. It was made for people who loved the stories that I loved growing up. The difference with the second book is it's made for our generation. It's made for the readers today. The takeaway from that is just research. You know, I'd been writing and I'd been writing and I'd been writing, but I hadn't been reading. It made sense that after four years of writing and writing and writing that what I was producing was out of touch with what everyone wanted to read at that point. You've been quoted saying, I didn't think Black people could be in stories. Was it hard for you to read and watch stories without many Black characters? So the sad thing about being erased is you don't realize you've been erased until you finally see yourself. I didn't realize until I saw Olivia Pope that I didn't have anybody else besides Olivia Pope. I didn't realize till I saw the book deal for The Hate You Give. I didn't know other young adult authors who looked like me who were writing about what I wanted to write about. It's really what a lot of Black people felt seeing the Black Panther poster. Because it is so whitewashed, you don't even know that you're not a part of it Mm because your imagination doesn't even have space to imagine you being a part of it. On one hand, it was really hard, but I didn't realize how hard it was until I processed the effect of all that, which is that I had gone from being really young and writing stories about me and kids who look like me to all of these stories, years and stories, over 10 years of stories with people who didn't look like me, like not even one character. It's kind of a really violent erasure and it takes place like within your own subconscious. And so I think that's why a lot of authors and creators are so passionate today, because once you realize that you've been erased and the effect that had on you and even on your imagination and your dreams, you feel really passionate about keeping other kids from experiencing the same thing. So you're a Harvard grad and you received a fellowship to study West African mythology and culture in Brazil. How have you used that to your advantage, both in your writing and your personal life? So what I learned most from Harvard was about myself and the true state of the world. So a lot of that wasn't things that was happening in the classroom. And I actually did Harvard English. Like I chose that because I wanted to write a creative thesis my senior year, which would have been like a book under the guidance of like a fiction writing professor. But I actually didn't get that. So I didn't know at the time the best thing was going to be being eligible to even apply for this fellowship, which put me in Brazil, which is where I got the idea for the book. Pre-entering college, I thought the extent of racism was that people would say ignorant things like to me and about me and think less of me. But I thought, again, I was just like just opinions that I didn't have to succumb to or didn't even have to acknowledge. But then my freshman year was first the Hunger Games came out and I saw this horrible internet backlash against the black characters in that story and seeing real hatred brought to a fictional universe so intensely shows you just a like a taste of how bad it still actually is. And then there was Trayvon Martin. And then you fast forward a little bit and suddenly all these police brutality cases are coming to light. And so it's like, oh, not only can I be killed by a civilian because I'm black, but I can be killed by a police officer because I'm black. And that journey of, I guess, faith being broken in society and the world, like that started in college and it's only gotten deeper and deeper and deeper. In the book, you tackle these issues on racism and things ranging from police brutality to colorism. Why do you think these topics are so important to address in a fantasy series? In the real world, 
it's impossible to separate people's preconceived notions from whatever it is that they're engaging with. So like we as humans, we take all of our life experiences, we take all of our thoughts into the stories we consume and into the media we consume. When you talk about those same things in a fantasy setting, the world is new and it's fresh and you have to listen to the rules for me. So I can take the same exact scenario from real America, and I would put them in the setting of Orisha. And it's black and white there. It's literally black and white. It's white page and black print. And in that setting, that same person can't say, okay, well, the guard wasn't wrong to throw Zaylee to the ground. You know, those same paper thin arguments, they evaporate when you're showing them in a different setting. And so I think that's the reason it's important to have these messages in so many different forms. Even in the context of fantasy, when you have these stories that capture the mind of a generation or become these big franchises, like that is a teaching mechanism. And we need that now more than ever. Do you feel that there's a great sense of responsibility now, now that you've delivered such an extraordinary piece of work? My responsibility kind of more feels like it comes from being a human. I know I'm very unusual in the way I always think about things and I feel like I come to the meaning of life like once a day. Not like I arrive to it, but I'm like, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. I guess I can only do what I do, not because I love it, but also because I feel like I'm helping. Even knowing I'm helping one girl, because that's what I always said. If even just one girl picked this up and spent the next 10 years alone in her room writing stories but with people who look like her, that's life-changing in itself. So knowing the scale of this process, like as a neurotic human being, I feel the need to tell the best story ever and to have it be the most epic trilogy ever and like to make every scene better and every dialogue like that. I feel that just personal responsibility as a creative. But as a human, especially knowing the scale of this, I feel it even more. And I feel the need to just keep fighting for that. When people have had some form of success, it also comes with a great deal of expectation and weight. What kind of pressure is that like on you and how do you cope with that? So that's constant. And I say that's constant because it's been around my whole life because <laughs> uh, I'm Nigerian and I have very Nigerian parents. So like from a young age, I was bred to be like, you have to be the best you can be and then you have to be better. <laughs> I think my coping mechanism is just being used to that. I do think that's my power, though, too, is putting so much insane pressure on myself that it's pretty difficult, if not impossible, for someone else to put more pressure on me than I put on myself. And so if I'm happy with it, then I can actually take that. It takes me a long time to be happy with it. And that in itself is a miserable process, but it does help to be, I don't want to say competing with myself, but to be like doing it for myself. Are you a perfectionist? Yes. And it is the worst to be a perfectionist when you want every word to work and every comma to work and every sentence to flow and every plot beat to do this. And the book is like almost 600 pages. So to put all of that, like that level of neuroticism to every section of that book, it is horrible. But, you know, I couldn't do it any other way, especially knowing like a book, once it's there, it's there. And it's there kind of forever. You have to sort of drive yourself crazy because stories outlive even the creators. I know I don't want to be in heaven and be like, God, that sentence sucked. So, (laughs) (laughs) and I would, I'd be the one person everyone would be partying. I could have done better. I'll be like, Tommy, I know, girl, I know. (laughs) Does it paralyze you ever though? 
I think yes, but I think in a way that all writers get in their own head and probably all creators get in their own head. It's part of the process. So even last night, I had written this scene and then I'd rewritten it relatively quickly for me. And it kind of come out pretty easy, like easier than everything else. And I was so excited. And so I was texting one of my best friends and I was just like, oh my God, it's going so great. I feel so good. I'm so happy. I'm so pumped. Also screenshot this for tomorrow when I read what I wrote and I text you and I'm like, it's trash. We need to burn it. This is never going to work. So it's not to say that I live in this period of like eternal confidence, but going through everything I did with book one, it's knowing that, okay, maybe it's not right now, but you can always make something better and you can always revise. I'm learning to trust myself and trust that it's going to work out, but also to trust that it's going to work out in a sustainable way. What do you think the biggest sacrifice that you've made in the name of trying to outdo yourself is? With this one, honestly, it's been the reverse, essentially, because book one was a lot of sacrifices. You're writing a lot. You're working these long hours. You're staring at the screen. A lot of times what you're eating is not something that you should be eating constantly over the course of six hours. I would also not work out because a deadline would be approaching and I'd be like, I need every hour of every day. But I was also not taking any breaks at all. So it's kind of like a tire that's stuck in dirt that just keeps rolling faster and faster, but digging itself deeper and deeper into the dirt. By trying to push so hard, I had actually fried my actual capacity and actual efficiency so that things that if I was well-rested would take me a week were then maybe taking like three weeks or a month. And because that had taken so long, then I would be in that same exact no time to rest situation for the next thing that I had to accomplish. Something that I've been trying really hard to do this time around is taking the concept of a break and not making it this flowery, like I just need to do this until I can start writing again. To being like, oh, this is actually part of my job. Because if I take breaks, if I take care of myself, if I don't eat trash, if I go box, then I am going to have the ability to actually do what I want to do well. Something I saw at Harvard I went into freshman year and I was one of the many neurotic kids who had kind of killed themselves to get there. But when I got there, I was like, okay, like that's chill. You know, you can trust yourself. You can work hard and you can trust yourself. I saw kids just go and put the same exact pressure on themselves. And so then it was like, okay, now I have to get this thing and I have to kill myself to get that. And I think that's the danger. You can only temporarily push yourself that hard. And once you get to that thing, you do have to have the long-term viewpoint to be like, okay, now what do I do? Because I can't do that again. Like I couldn't do what I did for book one again. So there are periods where you do have to push it to the limit, but then you have to take that break and be like, okay, I pushed it to the limit. Now I need to stand on what I pushed myself for and take it down a notch. So not do worse, but do it like more sustainably. How do you think that boxing has helped your creativity? Oh my God, it's so great. <laughs> it's it's mostly great. I mean, I think all everyone should do it. I think all women should especially do it. But really what I, you can maybe tell <laughs> from just from talking to me, but I'm the kind of person who like can wind myself up really, 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 really tight. And so when you're boxing, you just have to breathe. <laughs> like you can't do it if you're breathing. You can't do it if you're wound up. So it's like this forced relaxation. Do you think that that helps with things like criticism? When I do engage with social media, anything that is even remotely negative, I mute because there's no point. 
I already have so many voices in my head. I can't add like at Stacy dash underscore hot dog number three, you know? <laughs> so it's, if you're doing something, then you also have something for people to hate. I've gotten shit my entire life. You know, I got into Harvard and people were like, oh, it's because of affirmative action. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's not because I have a perfect GPA and I went to state in this event and I'm president of these clubs and my essay was fucking amazing. I've had a lifetime of achieving things and having people criticized from the background because of the color of my skin. So I actually thought things were going to be a lot worse when the book came out. And that's not the case. So that makes the negative that does come in even more like the mosquito that you just swat away, or in my case, mute or block. Has there ever been a piece of criticism or a bit of feedback that you really did take to heart that made you take a step back? I had two experiences and they weren't actually like intense bits of criticism, but they were more just learning processes for me. I am intense about feedback. When I was getting literary agent, I had like 15 offers and the agents I went with were the ones that were like, oh, this book needs a lot of work. Almost everyone else was like, oh, we could sell this in a week, you know? And with my editor, like I said, it was insane. The book that was published from the book that was sold to her was, is maybe like 200 pages longer. And it'd be one thing if it was just adding 200 pages over the course of like nine months, but like the entire story is different. So I'm very intense about feedback and revision and always making something better. So I take feedback to heart, but the thing about that is you have, you can't take all feedback to heart. And when I was nearing the end of the publication process, I saw this one review and it was mostly positive. It's like it almost it was almost like 93% positive, but there was just this one sentence in it that was like a logistical thing. And I couldn't get that sentence out of my mind as I was preparing to turn in a final draft to it. And so I ended up undergoing this entirely new revision. And I was like, oh, okay. So that kind of told me that I can't do that. <laughs> because I can't be wanting to rewrite my entire book every time I get like one little piece from someone. We go back and we read all of our rejection letters again and again and again. (laughs) And we got so many of them. I think you have to really trust your instincts in those types of situations. But I also think you have to have enough self-belief and do something with that that actually moves the nose off the table, you know? And and, and so I think it's a true sign of character when you know what to do with those things. And so I just love that you are an example of what it means to get rejected, to go back and rewrite it again, to surround yourself with people who are telling you it's not good enough so that you can make it better because they're pushing you, pushing you. Most people yes. just don't want to hear that. They just want to hear it's amazing. You're you're brilliant. You're extraordinary. It's going to sell. I think a huge commonality I expect to see even with the final product and with all the people featured is that refusal to settle. Because yeah, it's like you said, there's always the easier path, but it's like none of the people we talk about take the easy path. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you had to boil down your successes, what would they be? Yeah, it'd definitely be that refusal to accept anything less than my best, which again, has driven me crazy. (laughs) That'll also be my like personal downfall, (laughs) but every single word is analyzed. And that's why the process kills me because I want every scene to come alive. And that means every single word needs to work in every sentence. And when you have like 30,000 words, you are setting yourself up to fail. But I think that's what it takes to create something great. Also, I think having that mission and that fire, there are several times where I 
either for personal reasons or for what was happening in our world, just felt helpless and felt like, what's the point? And so when you have that mission, when you have, you know, people close to you who not only believe in you, but also believe in your mission too, that's really necessary. So it's basically having that fire and refusing to settle. Also knowledge, that is the very important one (laughs) that I think is worth telling. And I think that comes because my partly from my Ravenclaw heritage, but like research, research, research. The reason I was able to make the decisions I was able to make, the reason the book has been positioned the way it was, the reason I think it's selling the way it is, not all of it can be controlled, but a lot of it can be studied. And I studied people who were doing what I wanted to do and tried to learn as much as I could from the way they were doing that and peek beyond that and figure out what does it mean to be at this house or with this editor or with this agent, like doing that research, being like, how do movie options typically work? You know, knowing these things definitely put me in a position to make the right decisions, which led to the book's success. When you were leading up to the book actually hitting shelves, what are some things that you did that may have affected how well the book was received, aside from it being obviously an extraordinary piece of work? I think it is all of those decisions. It was the series of decisions. A lot of people like to say like, oh, publishing is 90% luck and like 10% effort or 90% luck and 10% timing. I think if you're being a Slytherin about it, which publishing has turned me into, (laughs) I think it can be at times like 85% of things that you have a pulse on and that you have an ability to influence and then 15% luck. And I think that 15% luck is timing, you know? And so that's what you can account for. Like I could not account for Black Panther. I could not account for the hate you give. The years of stories by authors of color that paved the way for my book. But for the other things, like you said, making the product as good as it can be, taking in the feedback from why my first book got rejected. I feel like every day I see authors um, or aspiring authors and they're usually male and they'll get a rejection from an agent and they're like, well, you're going to be sorry because I'm going to be bigger than Harry Potter. Rejections are a form of feedback too. So it's not that you can take everyone to heart, but if you just take a bunch of rejections and decide everyone's dumb and they're wrong, then you're not going anywhere. So if I had just hammered on my first story, we still wouldn't be here because I would have missed that kind of launch pad of timing window trying to make something work that clear wasn't working. So what part of this is is happy-go-lucky fairy tale unicorn dust? And what part of this is business decisions? What's the connection between the agents behind these big books? What's the connection between, you know, who represents them and where the movie goes? What's the connection between where the movie is optioned and how many of these option movies actually go into development? It's looking at all of these things and putting yourself out there. Arming myself meant that every time I had to make a decision that was critical for my book success, I ended up making the right one. Anyone who is trying to do their own thing automatically becomes an entrepreneur. And I think that gets really difficult, especially in the creative fields, because you go from thinking of magic portals and dragons to being like, wait, how do I make the best business decision to set myself up and my career up? And that's a very different minefield. But you have to do that in any field you're in. I always said I didn't want to sell things. And then I grew up and I realized every job involves selling something. If you're not selling a product, you're selling yourself. You have to learn to think about what you do as a business. And then it becomes a little bit more math and science about, okay, well, what's better for the business? I'm going to read a couple of series of statements and I'd love for you to just fill in the blank. So the first one is, my motto is, always eat pizza. (laughs) 
<laughs> the world would be better if everyone had more empathy. I'm not very good at clothes. So that always gives me hell whenever I have to dress like a human woman. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> the biggest misconception about me is that everything happened overnight or that happened without so much blood and sweat and tears and like uncomfortable bowel movements. <laughs> <laughs> it bothers me when. Oh, God. Basically, when I turn on the news, everything that comes through the news is so disheartening, especially this week alone. I never thought. Oh, I never thought I'd be doing this at all, which is crazy because I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't admit it to myself. So that's kind of where I've been living this week is like, wow, this is what I'm doing. And that's really cool. <laughs> Someday I am going to. Ooh, that's a good one. Someday I'm going to hold Viola Davis's hand. I love it. <laughs> love that. <laughs> probably just cry oh. and have her be like, please let go of my hand. <laughs> I love it. Tommy, thank you so much. You know, you're a 24-year-old author. You are changing our perspective. You're opening up our world. You're making a lot of people on earth more hopeful for the future. So thank you so much thank for sharing you. your story with us. And of course, for being a rare breed. If you're inspired by this episode and ready to turn your vices into virtues, get your hands on a copy of our explosive new book, Rare Breed, a guide to success for the defiant, dangerous, and different. It's available at thisisrarebreed.com and wherever you buy books. You can also listen to all of our Rare Breed interviews with celebrities, misfits, oddballs, and entrepreneurs at thisisrarebreed.com slash interviews. Be sure to share this podcast, tell your friends, and join us on social at This Is Rare Breed. Remember those simple rules of office etiquette, and you'll get along in the business world.